Congratulations! You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. Aotearoa has been operating in Antarctica for nearly a century, and we've had a permanent base in the polar region since 1959. That's why, in Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's latest trip to Antarctica, she remarked that Aotearoa must serve as a herald of peace in the polar region amidst a time of global tension. Between the Ukrainian war and the developing relationship between China and the United States, Prime Minister Ardern said that it is, absol- it is absolutely crucial for Antarctica to remain a ground for exploration and scientific research. With this in mind, it's important to understand why states would want to position themselves in Antarctica, what Aotearoa's role in Antarctica is, and whether the region's governance schemes can meet the challenges of climate change and interstate conflict. Joining me to talk about this further is Antarctica governance expert, adjunct professor Alan Hemings from the School of Earth and Environment at Te Whare Wananga o Waitaha. Kia ora, Alan. How's it going? Good morning, Zach. Lovely to speak to you. Lovely, lovely to speak with you too. Now, what, broadly speaking, why would states want to establish a presence in Antarctica? You know, what benefits does Antarctica provide? Right. Well, I think if you go back to the kind of beginning of the kind of modern presence in the Antarctic, uh, it was because the Antarctic was seen to um, offer some immediately useful information, basically around meteorology, which for Southern Hemisphere countries, such as New Zealand, means what happens in the Antarctic affects our weather here. Um, But then, uh, and I guess this is one of the key arguments today, the really powerful scientific insights we get from our research in Antarctica, most obviously now around the critical climate emergency, which faces the entire planet, Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, um, because states want to have influence over decisions around resource access, fishing, tourism, bioprospecting, mining, uh, whether their position is that this should be allowed or regulated or outright prohibited. But to have a seat at the table where these things are adjudicated is seen as you know, a reason for going there. Right. So how do you characterize Aotearoa's role in Antarctica? And how effective do you think Aotearoa can be in preventing states from, you know, militarizing in the region? Yeah. Well, I think historically we've had a a really positive role in the Antarctic. Um, uh, You know, New Zealand uh, has been a progressive, collegial uh, state. Uh, It's done good science and it's been sensitive to the environment, you know, as as an overview. Um, uh, Currently, I would say that our situation is not quite so good. it seems to me that we lack a coherent geopolitical framing for our Antarctic presence. Um, we have increasingly weak representation and aspiration within the diplomatic fora of the Antarctic Treaty System. We have inadequate funding for our Antarctic research. And our government, like sadly most other governments in the world, seem not to be taking uh, the slightest bit of no- notice of what our science tells us about the necessary and pressing responses to the climate emergency that's engulfing us all. Mm. Um, And, uh, you know, I think there are, coming down to the next level, I mean, there are some issues around the nature of Antarctica and New Zealand's priorities, and particularly in relation to the Scott Base uh, replacement. And, you know, this is what the Prime Minister has just been down doing a sort of preliminary uh, recce on. Um, There's a piece published online by Stuff This Morning, which looks precisely at this, which um, I think makes an interesting reading. So, you know, $334 million was budgeted for the rebuild of Scott Base. It's apparently already blown out to $500 million, mm. and building hasn't even started. So to put this in a context, you know, in, 
in Dunedin, um, you're spending $1.5 billion on the new Dunedin Hospital, which would be fantastic. A much bigger, more complex project, and one where, you know, you have to buy the land to build it on, and that was the old Cadbury site, I understand. So we're talking about a third of the cost of building uh, Dunedin Hospital in the Antarctic. Uh, and the reasonable question is, is that the best use of the Antarctic dollar? Mm. Well, you mentioned before that New Zealand didn't really have much of a geopolitical standing in Antarctica. Um, is there yep. any way we, we could improve that, or is that just due to this nature of us being kind of a smaller power? Well, I think, I mean, we've, we've always been a, a small power, but I think it's very striking how influential New Zealand um, has been through the lifetime of the Antarctic uh, Treaty. And it's partly through sending uh, our best diplomatic people um, and secondly, it's through being uh, innovative, you know, this kind of ability in New Zealand to have a kind of a whole of New Zealand involvement in the development of policy. And we seem to have lost that, that kind of ability to do that. And we're much more fractured um, and we're much more, uh, you know, departmental silos. I think that can be altered, but that's 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 a sort of a governance issue. Um, it's also about us having confidence to say, that we see particular sorts of Antarctic futures as more desirable than others, and, and actually then putting uh, some of our money, um, uh, um, and perhaps not all of it, into rebuilding um, a station, um, putting our money and our intellectual effort into persuading other states that we can have a common collegial future in the Antarctic, and it doesn't need to turn into, you know, over the next decades, a, a nasty cold version of the South China Sea. Now, you mentioned that, uh, you know, governance in Antarctica, and, and governance is broadly ruled by the Antarctic Treaty System, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which yes. has 55 signatories who have varying claims to Antarctica, but only 29 have voting status at the annual treaty meetings. Uh, under the treaty, how are territorial claims to Antarctica legitimized, and how do meetings decide who does and doesn't have voting rights to the goings-on in Antarctica? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, claims are not legitimised by the Antarctic Treaty itself. They were all asserted, and objections to them were raised, before its negotiation at the end of the 1950s. Um, and the three positions around territorial claims, um, we assert them, we don't recognise them, um, we don't recognise yours, but we believe we have a basis to claim ourselves, are the key elements allowing for the agreement to the treaty in the first place. And these are artfully codified in Article 4 of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. So we've got seven claimants, Argentina, Chile, and the UK, with overlapping and contesting claims in the Antarctic Peninsula. Australia and New Zealand, whose claims are essentially presence from the British Empire between World War One and World War Two. Uh, New Zealand's Ross Dependency, basically given to us in 1923. Uh, the Australian Antarctic Territory given to the Aussies in 1933. The French and the, Nor and the Norwegians codified their claims just before World War II. Um, the United States and the Soviet Union, now Russia, uh, are what I term semi-claimants. They don't recognize other claims, but say they have a basis to claim themselves. So the 29 decision-making states that you mentioned are these nine plus another 20 mm -hmm. who have stations and ongoing science programs in Antarctica. And these are called the Antarctic Treaty Consultative Parties, and essentially, if you meet the threshold of a station, an ongoing science program, and you get the consensus of the existing consultative parties, you become one yourself. 
But it is always subject to politics. And right now, we're at one of the most acute phases as a direct result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because the two states that are currently seeking consultative party status are Canada, with whom nobody has any particular problems, and Belarus, which a number of countries have a great deal of problem with. So, um, you know, this greatly, greatly complicates the process. Whether Belarus uh, is acceptable or not will probably be linked to the fact that the Russians are likely to veto Canada unless Belarus is acceptable. So the politics of even becoming a, a decision-making state is uh, really quite acute. Right. Now, although... You know, you might have listed out some um, some flaws in the uh, Antarctic Treaty System. It, it has been largely viewed as a success by international govern- uh, governance scholars. Um, but the 20th, 21st century is proving to be a time of unprecedented changes. Uh, what do you think are the main challenges that lie ahead for member states of the Antarctic, Antarctic Treaty System to maintain this renowned international governance? Well, Zach, I mean, I, I, I join you in, in saying, yes, it, it, the Antarctic Treaty System has been uh, a success by international governance standards. It's the only part of the world where we haven't killed each other. Uh, you know, we, we, we don't have interpersonal nor interstate violence in the Antarctic, and that is one hell of an achievement. Um, but if we look ahead, I think that, that we have to prevent the rivalry that we see arising through the changing global order um, manifesting in the Antarctic too, because it will unpick the Antarctic Treaty System, which you know was was negotiated uh, during the Cold War, but still you know a long time ago in the, in the late 1950s. So there's already rivalry and suspicion. So Western states say, oh, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are screwing the place. Um, the Russians and the Chinese, and their positions are not exactly the same. It's important to make that point. Uh, but, but they say, oh, look, you know, this is a, this is a Western sew-up. Um, the Global South looks at the whole lot with suspicion and says, well, we're not actively engaged, and it's a glass ceiling for to getting into the system. Um, the Antarctic is part of, you know, our common, common planet too. So we need to prevent Antarctica becoming a scene of international strategic rivalry, and we don't want to see military planning and such like normalized in the Antarctic. So we have to find a route through competing positions on access to Antarctica for fishing, and in the future minerals, of which hydrocarbons is likely to be the first and most contentious. We need to find common ground on environmental protection measures, most obviously in relation to climate change. And I'd suggest we need to agree never to extract hydrocarbons from Antarctica. we're trashing the planet with the ones we've extracted elsewhere. Let's not make it worse. Um, and also on conventional matters, um, we need to up our game on environmental protection. This week in Hobart um, is the second big diplomatic meeting of the year, uh, the meeting of the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, where, where yet again I hear from inside we're failing to agree on marine protected areas. Um, so we've got plenty of problems, um, but we've got 60 years of successful international collaboration, so no reason to give up yet. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. Find more at r1.co.nz.